This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. The Gosford Race Club standalone meeting will be held on Saturday the 9th of May at Royal Randwick. Unfortunately, the half-million-dollar race that was to be called The Coast has been postponed for now to be replaced by a benchmark event. In the absence of The Coast, the spotlight will fall on the Gosford Gull Cup and the takeover target stakes, while the bush horses will be there for a Class 3 TAB highway over 1,200 metres. One week later, May 16, and Rosehill Gardens will host the Scone Race Club standalone Saturday, featuring six black-type races. The highlight will be the Group 3 Dark Jewel Classic, supported by five listed races. The Luscan Star, the Hortensia, the Denise's Joy for three-year-old fillies, the Woodland Stakes for two-year-old fillies, and the English three-year-old guineas. Who would have thought the Gosford Cup would be run at Royal Randwick and the Dark Jewel Classic at Rosehill Gardens? Unusual measures for extraordinary times. When John O'Shea left Cairns in far northern Queensland in 1995, he was driven by the exuberance of youth and a head full of dreams. He'd already trained a handful of winners at home, but was straining at the leash to see how it was done on the big stage. He walked boldly into Tullock Lodge at Kensington on a Sunday morning as Gay Waterhouse was entertaining some of her clients and introduced himself. He started work for the stable the following morning and within six months was upgraded to a foreman's position. John later had six valuable months with Bart Cummings, followed by 18 months with Gary Moore, after which he bit the bullet and set up shop as a commercial trainer at Warwick Farm. He quickly established a reputation by winning a string of races with a couple of tried horses and John O'Shea was on his way. He currently looks back on more than 1,500 winners, including 28 at Group 1 level. He spent three years as head trainer for the Godolphin Empire, posting 550 wins and 10 Group 1s. His departure from that role just on three years ago is one of the topics we're going to discuss on this podcast with one of Sydney's most respected horse trainers, John O'Shea, Thanks for joining us. Morning, Tappy. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Appreciate your time. You're now in the Randwick stables, previously occupied by Anthony Cummings. You've got 50 horses in work and the winners are starting to flow. You've had to rebuild from scratch. Yeah, it's been probably the toughest thing I've ever done in the sense that when you start from scratch, when you first get out on your own, you sort of got no expectations and you know that it's going to be tough and etc. Mm. But... Once you've been sort of where I've been and then you're sort of back to square one, oh, uh, it's yeah. a difficult scenario. And But, you know, got through it all now and, and mm. hopefully, you know, the next few years we can and get back to a level that, to which we're accustomed. Yep. Winning the support of owners has obviously been your primary concern. Unlike your first foray into training in 2000, this time the score was on the board. You had a pretty impressive CV. Yeah, and there's no doubting um, that, you know, once you've trained a few winners and that, it's uh, it's obviously a lot better scenario to be in and, and that's the philosophy we're talking. So, 
I think it's just a mental thing on my part in terms of, you know, starting from scratch and, and having to go back to taking horses to Hawkesbury on a Sunday and, and do it yourself. It's sort of, mm. it's been a bit of a reality check, but an enjoyable reality check. And, and I've really enjoyed getting back down in the trenches and, and back to where we started. You were always one of the favourites to land the job as Godolphin's head trainer when Peter Snowden decided to go solo. What was your very first reaction when you got the call? Did you ever think, oh, I don't know if I want this job? Well, my first reaction was, you know, I sort of, I I was thrilled to be offered the role. Um, That wasn't the case for my wife. Um, She took a lot of convincing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her first reaction was, you know, well, we've worked really hard to get to where we got to, so I would want to give that up. And um, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I think um, from any trainer's dream to work with Shape Muhammad uh, with you know 400 horses is is sort of you know where everyone wants to aspire to be, and, and so yeah. I was no different. Mm-hmm. Yes, it wasn't just a case of John O'Shea making the move to a new location and a new life. But Isabel and those four kids had to make the move too. And that's the thing, Tuppy. I mean, <clears throat> to do a job like that, you've got to have the whole family buy in. Mm. And uh, because if you, you know, you're working 80, 100 hours a week. Mm. So if you, if, if everyone around you is not, you know, involved or at least bought into the scenario, it makes it incredibly difficult. So I was lucky that once we made the decision to go, that my whole family moved with us. <clears throat> Excuse me, and uh, and including my wife, and and so consequently they gave a tremendous support base um, while I was doing the job. Mm. I believe your very first assignment was to fly to Dubai and meet <coughs> Sheikh Mohammed himself, and any apprehension on your part was quickly put to rest. He made you very much at home. <clears throat> He's just an amazing person to meet, and. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, I, I got to drive around Dubai in the desert with him in his car and we spent a day at a, at a cross-country sort of horse event and just in his in his cabin and, um, and you know, like he just made us really, really relaxed. Mm. Remember the last thing I said to him when I was leaving, you know, so I was like, boss, I'll try my best for you. And he just said, I know, you know, like he never sort of stressed and no. but he had a really un- good understanding of, number one, the horses mm. and, and and the job and, and, and love racing obviously and so you know I'll always be very very thankful for the opportunity to number one to meet him and then to work for him hundreds of horses pass through the system under your supervision <clears throat> at um, Godolphin and you formed an attachment to several of them none more than the recently retired Hartnell John what is it about this horse everybody loves Hartnell you know, and I, he was just my <clears throat> favourite horse in terms of he's had a real character and um, he had a you know a lot, few idiosyncrasies, but he just he wanted to please you. He, and, and if you sort of just let that character evolve and that he you know he would race accordingly. And you know, every morning we'd go and work him and he'd come back out to where we all used to stand and walk around us for 10 or 15 minutes and he'd unloosen off his crossover and he'd rub his head against you. And you know, like mm. he just did it every day and he. He was just a dude of a horse and, um, you know, I mean, he's just – you love getting up every morning, going to, you know, work him and work yeah. with him and then saddle him up on race day. Poor old Hartnell. He got sick of looking at Winx's bum. <laughs> but yeah. whenever she wasn't around, he showed what he could do. You won a BMW with him and a Turnbull, both Group 1s, and he was awesome in the Turnbull, nearly four lengths. 
Yeah, no, he was uh, – that was probably his crowning moment, you know. He he beat the ultimate Caulfield Cup winner by four lengths and was sh- shutting down at the furlong. And, mm. um, you know, he, he was enormously talented. In any other era, he would have been Australian Horse of the Year on, you know, a couple of occasions. But, um, unfortunately mm. for him, he just kept bumping into a champion. And, um, mm. and uh, but, you know, I felt that, you know, when we raced her that – it was important when we raced it. It helped us to where we were going, and hopefully she wasn't going to be there. And if you had form around the best horse in the world, that was always the right form to get you a win somewhere else, you know. You won a Doncaster for Godolphin <clears throat> with a horse called It's Somewhat in 2017. It was your third Doncaster, and you should have been on an absolute high. But you told me something very, very interesting. You said... As you uh, walked through the tunnel with a Doncaster winner, you were not conscious of the same buzz the first two had given you. Yeah, it was a really weird feeling, Tapio. I mean, um, we'd had a really, you know, pretty strong carnival and um, and then that horse topped it off winning the Doncaster. And I just remember when it won, I just walked up the tunnel with Darren Beedman, who was an assistant at the time, and mm. it was just a weird feeling. It sort of, it just felt like a, a maiden at Canterbury, you know, and, there's no different, and I think that it, that sort of was more reflective of what the job had become, and sort of mm. it just become a job, and um, and so that was probably you know that and a few other issues sort of mm. straw that broke the camel's back, and then you know not long after that we sort of probably decided to, to go our separate ways. Mm. There was plenty of speculation that you were unhappy in the job, and I don't think anybody was shocked when you tendered your resignation. But I wanted to ask you this. A week or two weeks or a month after you walked away, were there any regrets? It is regarded as the best job for a trainer in Australian racing. Um, mate, there's, there were so many – there was a lot of positives. You know, I, they, I loved working for Shape Bahamut. I loved the people that are around me. But um, going to the – you know, I was sort of – I miss my mates, mm. number one, and uh, and a lot of my mates are in the game and, and we – you know, you just miss that camaraderie that, um, you know, we used to, you know, go overseas together, with, you know, look at a horse together, look at the sales together. I just missed all that sort of thing. Mm. And uh, and that's what I enjoyed the most. And that's what I say to you when I won the Doncaster previously, you know, the celebratory dinners and all that sort of thing that you do with your, your clients and your friends when you win a big race is part of what you do it for. And, mm. and that had gone out of the... I love of it, it's sort of gone out of it because it had just become, well, that's another race. We move on and we've got races again tomorrow. And so mm. and so I miss that part of it, you know. So, and it's taken a while to sort of build that back up. But, you know, I enjoy, you know, now we've got that great circle of friends around us again. And, um, and you know, we get to go to the races with people we enjoy. And, and, and so, so the success is sort of tenfold when you do have a little bit of success with with your, your special clients and special friends. You can't take the Queensland out of the boy, can you? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> hey, John, let's go back to those early days in Cairns. Your first sporting love was rugby league and you showed some promise in the junior ranks. I think you represented Queensland once. Yeah, and I was first sort of local junior to do that. And, um, you know, it was, you know, for a young Queenslander to be awarded his you know, Maroon jersey at Lang Park and in front of a big crowd, I can tell you, it was a sort of humbling moment at that stage and, and that's all you sort of live for when you grow up, you know. And um, mm. But, uh, you know, so when you grow up in North Queensland, you sort of go to the races on Saturday and you play football on Sunday and that's pretty much your, 
mm. your existence. And uh, so I had a great upbringing, you know. Mm. You love the state of origin, and on a week-to-week basis, you're a very one-eyed Cowboys fan. <laughs> yeah, no, indeed. So we've just been a little bit bored at the moment, Tappy, so yeah, I'm desperate for it to get started again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you could ride a bit too as a youngster, and in your early teens, you emerged as a pretty good polo cross player. That's not an easy caper to master. Uh, probably the best way to describe polo cross is rugby league on horseback. And <laughs> um, I was a young sort of... 15-year-old, sort of, we got lucky enough to make a few representative teams and travel around Queensland playing polo cross and mm. um, soon learned to toughen you up a bit because you had to play against the men. And uh, But, um, no, so it was good, you know, in terms of great sport, great camaraderie and, and taught you some tremendous horsemanship skills, you know. Well, here's something about John O'Shea that isn't widely known. In your late teens, you went to the University of Southern Queensland where you attained a degree in journalism. What did you yep. intend to do with that? <clears throat> well, madam, to be honest, I suppose in Australia, you know, when you leave school, you're 17 and you've got absolutely no idea what you want to do. So I just wanted to get a degree in something I enjoyed and I enjoyed that and um, enjoyed writing. And so, uh, but I pretty much by the time I got to third year, I realised oh, I didn't really want to be a journalist. But I thought the best thing to do is finish it. So, you know, finish things, you start. And, uh, but it was a great, you know, I enjoyed the time. It's good mm. education and Met some tremendous people to which I'm still friends with. Got to play rugby league in Tormo, one of the toughest schools there is. And, mm. and um, yeah, no, it's a great three years of my life, to be honest. Well, journalism was quickly forgotten when you applied for and gained a trainer's licence. I imagine your dad, Bernie, was probably your main owner. Yeah, well, it, it, fundamentally, we had a bunch of old crocs there in North Queensland that sort of probably weren't getting the right result. He had a private trainer for a while and he moved on and, and so I just took over the ones that no one wanted and we had a bit of luck and he never paid me. The only time I got paid is when they won. So um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we were lucky enough to have a few bets occasionally, you know, yeah. got the chockies and uh, we had a great time. We had a few stables at the back of the farm we had and we just trip around North Queensland, yeah. you know, racing a few horses. Yeah. I met your dad, Bernie, only once, must be close to 20 years ago. I think I was at the Carbine Club luncheon before the Cairns Amateurs, and uh, he old, bowled. He bowled up after lunch and introduced himself. <laughs> well, mate, that's always the sort of the biggest you know meeting in North Queensland is the Cairns Amateurs, and you know mm-hmm. people, it's like yourself, spoken there. It's always a fantastic luncheon, and then we all go racing Friday, Saturday, and mm. um, he's a very passionate racing person, and um, and still follows it very closely to this day. Mm. What did you take out of two years with Gay Waterhouse? Um, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, to be fair, Tappy, if she just not sacked me, I'd probably still be there. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, she, she uh, I love working for Gay. Um, she taught you hard work, attention to detail. And, and um, you know, I, we had some great success when I was there. And um, But, you know, look, she just had a tremendous attention to detail and a, really positive attitude and nothing was ever unachievable. Yeah. I've spoken to several people who had worked for Bart Cummings and they all said he doesn't keep it to himself. If you want to ask, he's happy to tell you. What were your impressions of Bart the tutor? Well, for for me, going to work for Bart when I went there, it was was the right time because I'd sort of had a lot of experience with Gay and TJ that when I went to Bart, it was just about sort of, you know, I, he more fine-tuned me to, you know, to what was the right approach and 
And he was fantastic because he would forever um, happy to sit and discuss things, you know, after work and or at the track in the morning. And and I just was like a sponge and mm. and uh, spent a lot of time discussing him. So that's why he was sort of fundamentally more influential in my career than anyone else. Mm. Is there a smidgen of the Cummings technique in John O'Shea? I would suggest that I'm 90%, you know, the really? old follow. And, and whenever something's a bit difficult or a little bit, you know, at the crossroads, I'll just reflect back on, you know, I think what would he do or what would he say? And, yeah. mm. and, and one of the things I, I enjoyed most when I was at Godolphin, I, I employed Reggie Fleming, who mm. was Bart's long-time foreman for a long time in Melbourne. and. Mm. And those same conversations with Reg, you know, like we'd always reflect back on what he'd do on certain days, particularly leading up in the Melbourne Cup and, mm. you know, with Hart and all that's how we trained him, you know, when he ran third in the Melbourne Cup. And, mm. and so, you know, like to this day, I would I'd say I'd still do things 90% of the way that Bart would, do, would have done it 20 years ago. Mm, high praise. Finally, a stint with Gary Moore. There can be no better place to learn about PR, communication and sheer enthusiasm. Yeah, he's a great man, guys. Um, he he uh, we had some fantastic times, and he used to love to have a bet. And I can remember one day we we got a thing ready called Getty on Anzac Day here at Randwick, and we're back from eighties into eighteen dollars, and got the chocolates. Jimmy Cassidy wrote it, and mm. I've never seen a bloke want to do loop the loops up the course proper like guys that day. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's going to get run over one day. <laughs> so, uh, but he's, we're still great mates, you know, and uh, mm. always speak to him at the races all the time now. Now, his brother John is about to return to Australia and mm. speculation is rife that they're going to get together as a partnership. It'll be a great partnership and, and you know, it'll be, it's, it'll be lucky for John because he'll have a guy that's already established in Sydney and, and knows the way to train here because that's going to be the biggest challenge for John is the mm. transition from never having trained in Australia to, to being, you know, in this hard place at Sydney. So um, mm. I'm sure they'll be successful. They're a successful family and two successful people in their own right. So uh, mm. it's another string to the competitive nature of Sydney racing at the moment. You know? Well, finally the time arrives for young Johnny O'Shea from Cairns to open for business at Warwick Farm. You got hold of a grey gelding called Grey and Gold who'd been in three other stables previously. And didn't you have some fun with him? You won a Villiers, you ran second in a Hawkesbury <coughs> Cup. He was just a great old horse. He's a great old horse for me, Tabby, because when you start in your career, you got to, you know, if you can compete in those good races and, and get a result, you know, that's where you sort of t- people take notice. And so to win a Villiers um, at that early stage of our career was, you know, enormously helpful. And, you know, he just got to go around every Saturday. He was very competitive and, it was a great result for his ownership group and, and my training career. Mm. Mushtak, another great success story for you. You paid $40,000 for him at a tried sale and you went on to win six times that much. He won a Stayers Cup at Canterbury, won a couple at Rose Hill, he won one at Roundwick. He was a six-year-old when you got him. Yeah, no, he, he got gelded late in his life and, and uh, again, I needed horses, you know, when you first start training to go on the races. And, you know, he was fantastic because he, he used to do that same thing, sort of butt up every Saturday and, and be very competitive. And um, you know, when he ultimately we lost him, it was a tragic day for me and a very sad day. And, um, 
sort of probably went from, you know, put me on the map to make me want to nearly give it away. So, mm. um, but he, you know, those sort of horses are invaluable to start a career. Mm, yeah, you lost him in that horrific fall <clears throat> in the 2000 Ipswich Cup, one of the worst falls ever seen in Australian racing. He had to be put down. Yeah, no, he, he fractured both legs down the back straight at Ipswich and made I raced onto the track, ran up the back straight to grab him, you know, and he was laying there. It's just, you know, something I'll never forget. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to nearly lose my good friend Justin Sheehan at the time, um, it was tragic. So uh, mm-hmm. we all got through it and, you know, you moved on. And uh, But, you know, at that stage when Cree, Jesus, was just like getting hit with a sledgehammer oh, because yeah. you're just not used to it, you know. Well, despite that setback, your career was gathering momentum quickly, hastening your move to Randwick with your best years ahead. Now, let's pay homage to some of your favourite horses, John. Firstly, the brilliant Private Steer. You got her as a late three-year-old. You went on to win three Group 1s, two Group 2s and one Group 3. Hey, couldn't she let down if she got the right one? Yeah, no, she loved Randwick and uh, loved to get a toe on the ground and you know, um, she's probably as, as talented a horse or probably the best horse I've ever trained in that respect. So mm. um, to get her early again early in your career was fantastic and um, she she was just a fantastic racehorse. And, um, you know, she brought some really great times for our family and, and the people around us. Mm. So did Racing to Win. He was something else again, a <clears throat> remarkable grey gelding who won five Group 1s and five Group 2s. I mean, you could train for another 100 years and not get a horse to do that. It was just a freakish record. It was, and, you know, to pay 40 grand for him out of Easter Yearling, that was even luckier. And mm. When we bought him, we sort of thought he would have cost a damn sight more because he's buying costs at Largo and just the way he fell in the sale, they put him in unreserved, and we thought actually we might have missed something in terms of his x-rays. And, mm. and Trevor Stuckey said to me there, he said, oh, you might have missed something, and so I nearly ended up owning myself at one stage. Did you? Yeah. But um, he was kind enough to, you know, still take him, and lucky for him he did because mm. um, I gave him some tremendous enjoyment and gave us, but him and his uh, partner Penny gave him great, res- you know, enjoyment over the years to mm. go around the country racing in big races, and mm. um, they, he was a fantastic racehorse, you know, fantastic horse. John, I've got a regular podcast listener who is fascinated with the temperaments of good horses. Whenever I'm talking to the trainer uh, of, a, of a really top-class horse, he wants to know, were they easy to get on with? What about racing to win? Yeah, he just had the best temperament you could ever want, John, you know, and you know, I think with the geldings, that's the key. They, they've got to be willing and, and have great, you know, capacity to cope with pressure and, and, and not be sort of overly nervous horses. And, and I think that's why we spend so much time at the yearling stars watching and looking at horses to make sure the temperament is appropriate. Fillies mm. are different. You know, some of the great fillies you, you speak of in the world, you know, like Emancipation, and, and they'd all have their idiosyncrasies. They might be a little bit hard to handle, you know, might inclined to tie up, those sort of things. Yeah. You know, the, fundamentally they've got that great will to win, you know, but mm. – um, but, you know, I think most of the geldings and colds, they just have that great attitude in terms of being relaxed and, and being able to cope with pressure. Mm. You know, there was a touch of octagonal about racing to win. He didn't win by fancy margins, did he? But he kept sticking his head out. No, he did, Tabby. That's exactly right. You know, he's just a great war horse. And he ran past Desert War a couple of occasions there um, when he won, you know, George Maines and Epsom's and, 
And at the time, he looked as if he did it easily. But, you know, as we all knew later on in life, when he became a champion himself, there's a war. That was a hard, hard work. And, uh, but he, you know, he used to make it look easy, but he'd only stick his neck out far enough to beat him. And, um, and he fundamentally did that all the time, you know. Mm. You stretched him beyond a mile only twice. The first time he ran second in the Doomben Cup to scenic shot, and didn't he run a race? Yeah, and I, and I, again, I suppose I think if I'd had my time over again, I probably made a bit of a blue there in that um, I probably could have took the blinkers off him. I just put them on, and you know, when I reflect back now, I thought, oh, sod, I should have. And I think that was probably the difference because he just sort of travelled a bit too keen down the back and mm-hmm. might have just negated his sprint, you know. But I suppose you learn those things as you get a bit of experience, and um, mm. he, he eventually got ten furlongs, but you know, fundamentally, he's just a great miler. Oh, wasn't he? He did run fourth in in the McKinnon Stakes too later on. John, we'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with John O'Shea after this. Some of Australia's best race mares, many of them in fold at Champion Stallions, will be offered at this year's English Chairman's Sale, which will be conducted with online and telephone bidding on Friday, May the 8th. 55 fillies and mares form the main catalogue, headlined by multiple Group 1 winner in her time, Group 1 Oakley Plate winner Booker, who will be sold unreserved, Group 1 winner and four-time Group 1 place getter Unforgotten, clean up the dam of Doncaster winner Natoya, Enfold the Autumn Sun, Group 1 winner Young Star, a daughter of internationally respected stallion High Chaparral. Among the latest wildcard entries is the outstanding race filly Fundamentalist, a daughter of Not a Single Doubt and Enfold to Zoo Star. This filly was Group 1 placed five times. The Chairman's Sale will begin at 3pm on Friday, May 8, online at english.com.au with a live broadcast hosted by Caroline Searcy. For those looking for the right mare to create a commercial family that will breed on for generations, this is the sale for you. The English Chairman's Sale, Friday, May 8, online. John O'Shea, I'm sure you'll want to acknowledge a bonnie mare called Sea Siren. 18 starts, 7 wins, 5 placings, 1.6 million. She won a Doomben 10,000, a BTC Cup, a Manicato Stakes, and she ran second in two other group ones, Bonnie Mare. Yeah, and uh, very lucky, Tabby, in the sense that when we got her going, um, she'd been very moderate as a young horse, and I'd run Keith Biggs, who owned her, and said, look, Biggsy, I think we're off here. We're, she doesn't look once good, but we'll give her one more go. And that was sort of towards the early summer of a three-year-old year. And thank goodness we did because she put together a few wins at Canterbury and enough for me to sort of think that she may have been a, you know, stakes grade filly in the autumn. And we gave her a win, run her first up and she won mm. a group two first up, a silver shadow or something like that. And mm. and then, uh, you know, to go on and, and win a BDC Cup to beat uh, 10,000, uh, that's indicative of how, how good she was and um, mm. sort of put Fastnet Rock on the map, put me back on the map and yeah, and uh, just a really good man. She took you to England for the Diamond Jubilee Stakes in which she ran eighth of 18 and then you left her over there with Aidan O'Brien. Yeah, um, you know, to have a runner at Ascot was, you know, a dream come true. It would have been better to have a winner. But um, and just to go and experience that was unbelievable. Um she ran well enough. Probably, again, on hindsight, I probably should have run her in the 1,000 on the Tuesday. It would have been probably a bit more effective because uh, I got a bit of rain on the day she ran and didn't suit her. 
But um, we're left with Aiden, and I think she's gone to Galileo a good few times. Mm. Uh, and as yet, hasn't thrown anything of any note, but I'm sure one day she'll, she'll produce a good horse. What a great two-year-old was Charge Forward. 11 starts, four wins, four placings. He won a Breeders' Plate, he won a Todman, he won a San Domenico, he won a Galaxy, and he ran second to Dance Hero in a Golden Slipper. You thought he was nearly a good thing that day, didn't you? I did, mate. Um, so, you know, like he's a great little horse. Um, when he pulled off uh, Dance Hero's back in the slipper, I just saw he go straight past him, you know, because he, he had the gun run. He had Darren Bieber in the saddle. And, and to Dance Hero's credit, um, you know, he just ran an unbelievable time and it's still the record still stands, you know. So, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, the thing, you know, when I reflect back on it, though, one of the things, the consoling factors, a good friend of mine, Michael Angelo, saying Dance Hero and, Mm. It's one of those scenarios of I couldn't win, and geez, I was happy for him. And, yeah. um, and you know, like philosophically, it's, you know, they're so hard to win golden slippers. I've had, you know, a bunch of runners not but within a bull's roar of it since. And, uh, mm. um, but you know, like if ever there was a bloke that you'd want to see win a golden slipper, it was him. So mm. I was really happy for Michael and his family. Now, you mention a name there that uh, conjures respect from from me personally, Michael Angelos, one of Australia's most celebrated optometrists, one of Australia's most celebrated horse lovers and aficionados and a regular visitor to the O'Shea stables. Yeah, no, he's, um, he's been a tremendous supporter and, and friend of mine and, you know, I, I first met him, I strapped a horse for him called Assertive Lass who, when she was engaged, stable, and you know, it's what a champion she was. And geez, Michael, you know, for for a small number of horses, had some really champion horses, and mm. um, and it's well deserved because he's a great fellow, you know. You won a William Reed Group One, a Group Two, and a Group Three with Fox Wedge. He only had thirteen starts. He won five, and he's gone on to success at the stud. Yeah, no, he's sort of a really, you know, he he ended up sort of. Competing in a in a stellar year of two year olds, obviously behind Sepoy and Smart Missile, and in his two year old year, and then in his three year old year, he, he ran into Black Caviar a few times. So he he was always competing at the highest level, but um, you know it all came together in the William Reed. He was just in the top of his game, and he uh, he won it one convincingly and went off to stud. So uh, it was it was really what he is a very talented horse, a good sound tough horse, and mm. and his progeny now are similar. You know, like. Whenever you get a, a good horse by him, they sort of race onto their four and five and always competing at the highest levels, which is a bit like him. I want to ask you about two jockeys. You were singing the praises of New Zealander James McDonald before anybody else. In fact, on one occasion, you took the unusual step of flying him over to ride a few horses for you at Randwick a few years ago. Had you met him previously? Oh, it's just a young fellow that we were sort of following in New Zealand um, in an attempt to sort of, you know, find a, a stable rider, which I enjoy working with a rider with the horses. I sort of kept my eye on this young fella. And so one day during the winter, we'd, all the senior boys were away and was just struggling to find horses, someone to ride the horses. So uh, I rang him up and said, mate, I've got uh, three or four chances here and would like to come ride him and then we'll get you a few other rides on the day and blah, blah, blah. It's like what happened. So it was that ramp. It was his first foray into Sydney. I reckon he was about 18 or 19 at the time. And, and he rode a treble on the day and he rode one for us. And 
I can remember coming away thinking, you know, I thought he was good, but he's even better than I think he is. And um, mm. and so from that day on, we sort of we built a relationship. He used to come over for a month, a few days, and whenever we sort of had some nice chances. And and then uh, as he worked through the homesickness and sort of got a bit more mature, he made the commitment to come over and stay. And mm. and from there, sort of, he, he's just you know he's absolutely killed it. So um, yeah, he's he, he's. We've had a great relationship and hopefully that relationship continues going forward. Now, the other young jockey who owes you a vote of thanks is Tom Marquand, who has taken Sydney racing by the seat of its pants in the last 12 months or so. Two recent Group 1s on Adabe was the icing on the cake. Mm. Well, Tommy was um, recommended to us by a former employer of mine, Tommy Ward, who trains in England, and he said um, there's a good young fellow here who might do well to come down. I said, that's fine. So we had a look at his tapes and, and thought he'd be more than acceptable down here. He came down about 18 months ago and within about a week of being here, we rode a horse for me called Live and Free. It's won an 1,800-metre race at Randwick and the ride was just something to siege on, you know, like anyone else on it probably doesn't win. And and so from that was sort of a defining moment from then and, and from then he sort of kicked on and um, he went back home and had a good season. I sort of was keen to have him back again this year. <clears throat> so he's come back down this year and he's just shot the lights out of it. You know, he's had mm-hmm. a season to, to familiarise himself and, uh, you know, he's just he's just absolutely killed it. So mm-hmm. um, we can't seem to be able to talk him into staying, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. He, um, he's probably a bit like James was at the same age, you know, like he's a bit homesick. And, but hopefully one day you'll he, see the light and we'll be able to get him to commit to 12 or 18 months here mm. in a row and I'm sure he'll be very, very well received here. He probably doesn't have the poise of a Blake Shin, but he's strong and he's determined, he's positive in his races and isn't he vigorous in a finish? Yeah, no, that, and I think that sums him up. But, you know, he's got a – the thing about him, like all good young sports, he's got a tremendous attitude, you know, like he doesn't drink – all he worries about is he's a fitness fanatic. Um, he's got a tremendous work ethic. And, and look, no matter whether he's in Australia or England, he's going to be an absolute superstar down the road. And, um, he's got the world at his feet. And, um, you know, I think, you know, in 10 years' time, we'll be looking at him as a bloke who's ridden sort of 50 to 100 group one winners. You know, so mm. he's just a superstar. Now, training winners isn't the only thing you've been doing over the years. You and Isabel are the parents of four grown-up kids, three boys, one girl. Alex is 26, Jordan's 20, Camille is 17, and Peyton is 12. Now, are you going to give that poor girl a rest? Yeah. Well, mate, we, <laughs> she was, she'd probably agree with you. Um, <laughs> but, mate, we're very lucky. You know, we we got great four great kids and uh, it's kept us busy and, you know, I suppose – uh, from my point of view, it's always been my priority to be regarded as a good trainer, but a great father and a great husband. And um, and we uh, have a very close knit family. We do a lot of things together. And um, you know, like I said to you previously, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be able to do the job that I do. And mm. I give thanks every day for my beautiful wife and kids. Yeah, you were on a skiing holiday in Quebec when you met a delightful young lady with an appealing French accent. What was her reaction to the prospect of coming to a faraway land to marry a budding horse trainer? <laughs> oh, I think we were sort of young and stupid at the time, to be honest. I don't think we sort of gave a lot of thought. Just, you know, <laughs> we 
realised that that was who I needed to marry and I just needed to be, I would do what I had to do to get it done, mate, you know. And so um, <laughs> I realised I was punching well above my weight and uh, <laughs> sort of baffled her with a bit of, bit of science. Um, and, but I suppose, you know, she she got an opportunity to, to move out of a small small town and, and come and live in Sydney and, and we've been able to, we've been a very blessed life and, and got to do some things that we never would have been able to do if we're doing something else. So uh, we'll always be eternally grateful for the industry for what it's provided for us, you know. What is your current focus? What's your principal ambition? Where do you want to be in 10 years? I mean, I, I love what I do. You know, and I, I, you know, I just absolutely love training racehorses. And I love the, the, what we do on, the da- on a daily basis. I love going to the races. Um, and so, I, you know, this is a dream job for me. You know, so um, I just want to be able to train racehorses. I'd love to get to 50 Group 1 winners because that's rarefied air in terms of trainers. Um, and, uh, you know, if you'd have said, you know, when I started to train 50 Group 1 winners, well, you know, I probably would have knocked you over the feather. I'd have taken that with both hands. So, I mean, my I'm really focused and, uh, and, and so if I can get to that and, and then continue on beyond that, I'll be, you know, really happy. It's been an absolute delight having you on the podcast, John O'Shea. Thanks for your time. Tappy, always an honour to speak to one of the legends of the turf like yourself. Thanks, mate. Thank you, John. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.